This is episode 197 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, All About Charter Schools. This episode is part of our series on education and teaching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Chris Lubienski is with us from Indiana University, once again, my alma mater. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. I'll introduce you. Christopher Lubienski is a professor of education policy at IU. He is also a fellow with the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado and a visiting professor at East China Normal University in Shanghai, and was a visiting professor at Murdoch University in Western Australia. His research focuses on education policy reform and the political economy of education with a particular concern for issues of equity and access, which is great for us today. We're going to be talking about charter schools, so perfect. After earning a PhD in education policy and social analysis at Michigan State, he held postdoctoral fellowships with the National Academy of Education and with the Advanced Studies Program at Brown University. And he was recently named a Fulbright Senior Scholar for New Zealand. So we're so honored to have you with us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, let's start with some basics about charter schools. What distinguishes a charter school from a so-called private one or a so-called public one? That's a a really important uh, introductory question because there's a lot of confusion about that. You bet. Most Americans are pretty familiar with the idea of public and, and private schools and um, you know, we've had private schools for, for centuries uh, and for the last several decades, you know, about 10 the kids have been in private schools. Charter schools are a kind of a newer twist. Uh, they really started in the 1990s with some ideas um, preceding that back to the 1970s. And I think perhaps the best way to understand them is as public-private hybrids. Um, they're they're uh, publicly funded, but privately or independently managed, that is managed independent of traditional um, district control of, of public schools. Uh, there's some semantic arguments about whether or not they're, they're public schools. Some try to assert that they're really private schools, and this is a matter of privatizing public education. Um, and in fact, if you look at some of the marketing materials for some charter schools, they do kind of present themselves as private-style schools, but tuition-free. So they, they don't necessarily avoid that, that private label because there, there are some advantages to that in marketing. In marketing, right. Yeah, yeah legally, they are public schools. Um, in some states, they're considered basically the, the same as a school district. That has largely to do with the funding. Uh, charter school advocates have argued for, for years that they're public schools um, even though they're not managed by the, directly by the public, and therefore they deserve to have public funding. But I think the more interesting question really is less in terms of legal labels and more in terms of 
the organizational behavior of these schools. A lot of them were founded specifically to be more entrepreneurial, to act more like private style businesses. And some of them have adopted corporate models. So I think that's really interesting when you look at how do they actually behave uh, as in, in terms of public or private. Yeah, so interesting. They're kind of neither and have aspects of both. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine all the places that we can delve into here, but just to get a couple of big questions off my mind, at least. So if they're public in the sense that they're part of a school district, are they subject to the same regulations or policies or everything else that would go with being a public school in a school district? Yeah, well, typically they're not part of school districts. They're separate. Okay. In some cases, school districts do authorize charter schools to serve a particular purpose, but for the most part, they're independent of the, the di- districts in which they're operating. Um, so just to clarify that. And so they also, they don't necessarily get um, access to the public funds, the tax funds that are correct, collected by the district. They, instead, they usually get their funding more directly from the state. So the states will authorize uh, a charter school law and create a situation where different authorizers can create charter schools, but then the state funds those schools. But I got to say, um, even though there are, like I said, there are some semantic and some legal battles about whether or not they're public schools and should get public, they also do get a lot of private funding. And so do some public schools. You know, people do fundraising, for example, but charter schools in particular, there's some charter school chains that really depend quite a bit on philanthropies, um, donating money to their to their charter schools. A lot of charter schools work hard at getting, let's say, strategically placed people on their boards in order to help with fundraising. So just like many other schools, public and private, they're also looking to private resources as a way to kind of help their, their revenue. Gotcha. So again, in that aspect, they're a bit more like private schools. So they get their funding directly from the state. Yeah, on a per pupil basis. So, you know, where uh, the funding structure for traditional public schools, as they're called, you know, that that often they get a combination of local sources, state sources, and, and even federal sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, charter schools are more funded on a, on a per pupil basis. So they do really pay attention to that bottom line, to their enrollment, and it kind of incentivizes them by design to scale up um, in many cases to serve more students or to keep students in, you know, to keep them happy and in the, in the, in the seats, but also to expand enrollment where possible, because that can then increase their revenues or perhaps replicate their model, you know, in terms of like franchising or chaining schools. So there's this, this incentive that's kind of built into the structure of charter schools um, in, in terms of their funding. So when the funding comes from the state, is that money separate from money that would normally go to school districts or are charter schools in fact competing with public schools in the district for the same money? Yeah, both. I mean, it's hard to say that there's one model because we have over 40 different charter school laws in the state. So there's not one model, but okay. in particular, yeah, in, in general, they get money from the state. And the idea here with competition is that they do generally get funding that that might have otherwise gone to um, public schools. That's not always true, but the idea that public schools are then incentivized to compete, to try and do better, to keep kids from leaving for these charter schools. You can't just hold them harmless. You have to make sure that they are aware of the, the consequences. So yeah, they, they don't get the same funding um, uh, streams necessarily, but they do. So some people would say this is a form of privatization, but they, they're, they're uh, funding usually um, has an impact on the funding that's available for public schools. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually. It seems like the argument that it's privatization. I mean, if you're going to make an argument against it, I guess I wouldn't have picked that one. I mean, really, they're competitive. Yeah, but some people would say that that's privatization that in the public sector. We don't encourage competition. We're, we, you know, a professional model. We encourage collaboration, that type of thing. So they would argue that by injecting competition, that's moving more towards a private sector model. Mm. I think that the argument about privatization is kind of not particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, under a classic model of privatization, like you'd seen in, say, in Latin American countries in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, you take a state entity like a utility, for example, and then you sell it off to private investors. That's definitely not what's happening here. Right. You know, we don't have that type of privatization, but you do have marketization where you're creating more of a market-like environment for schools where they have to compete. Yep. Also, in a sense, you're privatizing the decisions about school. And so instead of being left open to voters who are voting for a school board, you're making it into more of a consumer style decision that parents make on behalf of their children. So you could make an argument there about privatization, but really I think a much better concept to think about here is, is marketization. We're creating markets or quasi markets that are designed to incentivize schools towards certain types of, of behaviors. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, great. Now I'm going to ask you this question and I, I know it's going to be a tough one. Can you generalize about charter schools in any way, like who runs them, where are they, who goes to them? Yeah, that, that's a big question, and, and increasingly, no, we can't generalize. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned that, that we have different states that have different charter school models, and they're often compared um, you know, on their charter school policies. There are some basic elements, though, I think that kind of define the charter school movement. The idea was um, moving away from more direct state administration of schools, so offering an alternative that wasn't administered by state employees, and in, in, in a sense, kind of moving towards greater autonomy for for new types of providers, so people or organizations that hadn't been part of the public school sector previously. So there's that idea of kind of outsourcing or including additional types of players in that, and. There were some ideas there of increasing autonomy for schools, increasing entrepreneurial tendencies, you know, that they could try new things, mm-hmm. inc- increasing innovation, but also increasing choices for families. So just by their nature that you have a new school that's set up, say, in a given city or town, and that it's going to offer something that's different that, than what's available in the, the established public school already. Um, so there was a lot of those types of expectations for schools. So there is a lot of variety there. But... There's also, like I said, those kind of common elements. I think you can also understand this in terms of looking at what were some of the initial expectations for schools. I think there was a lot of that we'd see a lot, you know, a thousand flowers bloom. We'd see uh, um, all these different types of models emerge. And people talked about independent mom and pop shops. So just like people can start a family restaurant, they might start a new school with a, a new idea or a different, you know, kind of curricular menu. And I think that idea has fallen by the wayside a little bit. We've seen instead a lot of bigger players move in in Mm -hmm. a lot of states um, offering more established models that they can prove have have worked or have a track record at least in other areas. And so they can make the argument that it's less likely to fail. We've also seen um, in some instances a real emergence of for-profit charter schools. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just nonprofits offering uh, charter and charter schooling, you see uh, companies, for-profit companies that are are starting to become bigger players in this market. 
where are they? I mean, they do tend to be more where the students are. So you see them more in urban areas. Okay. And in so certain states, the, the South, for instance, has been kind of a late, uh, late to come to the party. Southern states, um, they, they had um, joined the charter school movement for quite a while, with, a, with the exception of Louisiana, I'd say. Um, they were concentrated more in places like the Midwestern states, um, some out, out west. Um, so you get that, but you also, like I say, you get more urban areas. And so that's reflected in the demographics too. They tend to be in areas where there's more disadvantaged students, more minority students, and that reflects the locality in which they're in. But also on, on average overall, these tend to be, the students tend to be slightly more advantaged than many of the students they've left behind in public schools. For example, we know that there's fewer special education students in charter schools compared to demographically similar um, public schools. So there are some qualitative differences in the populations um, when you look at apples to apples comparisons of charter schools compared to nearby public schools rather than national averages. Why don't they offer special education? Oh, many of them do. Um, but just in general, on average, you see fewer um, special education students in charter schools. And there's reasons for that. So charter schools have been given a lot more latitude and autonomy from, from um, many of the re regulations that govern traditional public schools. So they don't have to do things the same way. That said, they still are public schools and they're expected to serve all students who apply. But we know uh, there's a lot of evidence of, of families of students with special needs who who go to a charter school and they're often told, well, you, you might be better off at this public school. They have better services. They're better situated for that. So um, that's, again, it's anecdotal, but we do see general patterns where there's fewer students who are identified as um, special needs students, fewer students with learning English proficiency needs, things like that, that they, it does seem like charter schools may be playing somewhat of a sorting um, role for mm -hmm. students in those regards. Okay, so if we think of this, I'm thinking now as we're talking about this sort of a distinction between these kinds of schools and what you might call government schools, which I'd never heard before, but seems to be a term that has come up over the past year, this idea that there are government schools and then there are not government schools. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be careful about the language there. That's, you know, that's part of a, a, a policy agenda. Mil going back to Milton Friedman, he started using the term government schools as a way to kind of denigrate public schools. Yeah. Um, and uh, other countries will use terms like state schools, um, you know, because they're run by the state. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a loaded term. I mean, there's some truth okay. to it because they are mm -hmm. administered by government entities, but these are local um, school districts with elected representatives from the, the district or, you know, from the, the community usually. So some people would say they're more democratic schools. I don't want to get into the semantics of that, but just be aware that, that, that you know, that those terms get thrown around. And I think that there's often an ulterior motive. To, to yeah. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah. That's what made me think of it as we were talking about how people market these and as a way to, yeah, separate themselves or distinguish themselves. Yeah. This goes back to this whole nature of how you market yourself to people and, right, and the right. comparison. So I'm getting a little bit of a picture in my mind in certain cases and, and tell me if I'm off base here where there might be occasions in urban centers where the public school uh, has gotten a bad reputation. And so a charter school springs up and the more advantaged students gravitate toward that charter school. And so you get this basically segregation that's happening. Is that, does that happen? Am I that's off one, base? Yeah, that's one of many scenarios. Yeah, that does happen. I, I wouldn't necessarily say more advantaged students um, 
always. And sometimes it's just students whose parents are more active in their education. They, they might have more material resources uh, or, or fewer, but the parents nonetheless are more invested in education. So they're willing to, you know, they're able to take the time to go out and search the different options available. So um, you know, the question of advantage becomes a little bit uh, murky there, but that's one scenario where there, you know, you get failing or, or no performing public schools. And so an alternative springs up and it's going to tap into a, a pre-existing market of people who are unsatisfied with their their low performing public school that that does happen but you can also map these things out and see well where are the charter schools opening and um, another scenario is you see that they um, often avoid areas with the, the the most disadvantaged or the most under underserved students and instead tend to ring around areas with more affluent students yep um, so that happens. That would as make well. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens well, and it often in, in our research, actually, it, it tends to be more apparent with for-profit charter schools, um, where, where where kind of nonprofit, mission-driven ones are trying to serve a particular social need, but for-profit ones are ones that are more likely to do what we call ringing strategies, where they kind of go around an area with high need, but they don't go directly in those areas, and by doing that, create somewhat of a filtering device where. It leaves it up to parent. You know, they can. They're only going to serve the parents who have the the resources and the time to transport their kids out to the to that ring. So that, that happens as well. Gotcha. Right. Oh my. Yeah. All these factors in play. Interesting. So, our so what's the history of charter schools in the U.S.? Yeah, they're a pretty new uh, policy innovation, really. Um, they they started it was an idea of a principal. Um, I think it was a principal in Lansing or East Lansing, Michigan. And then he was uh, work, working in education research out in Massachusetts. And his idea was to create kind of small communities, temporary communities of teachers who wanted to try a particular pedagogical approach or a curricular approach and to give them kind of a professional space to do that. So um, they could apply to, say, a, a school district and say, hey, can we try out this idea for five years? Um, let's try maybe a Montessori approach. And by doing that, they, they would get say, a, a charter or a contract that would give them the ability to do that, you know, kind of free from competition, more of a professional space for them to, to do that. And that idea came up in the 1970s and kind of hung around as an, an idea, but became embraced, interestingly enough, by Al Shanker, who was the head of the American Federation for Teachers, the second biggest teachers union. He, he thought, hey, this is a really interesting idea to kind of advance a professional model for teaching. So he he started to become a champion for that idea as well. Interesting. And the idea of the, the term charter comes from um, this principle I mentioned. He thought back to the old days of, of uh, you know, in the, in the 17th century, for example, where European monarchs would grant a charter to companies, the Hudson's Bay Company, for example, to, to have a little monopoly over a particular trade to, to, to control it. And he, and he was basically thinking in those terms that we're going to create a contract to give them the opportunity to do something special without competition. So that's where the term comes from. Um, mm-hmm. Al Shanker adopted the idea and some progressive educators in particular in Minnesota really liked the idea. They, they were frustrated by the fact that a lot of communities were really underserved by public schools. They weren't, they weren't reflected in the curriculum. They weren't, get, they weren't succeeding in school. And so they thought of that as a, an interesting idea to kind of, reach out to those communities. So these progressive educators um, adopted the idea at the same time that that some more conservative market advocates that, hey, this is an interesting idea for in, to inject more competition into schools, to bring more private providers into public education. And so you had some strange bedfellows there, progressive 
educators and, and, and more conservative privatizers, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. And so I, around that time, I think Al Shanker started to distance himself from the idea and said, hey, this isn't what we had in mind. But nonetheless, uh-huh. <laughs> in 1999, it really kind of exploded. Minnesota had the first law, first charter school, and then it just kind of swept across most of the states of, hey, let's try something new. Here's some innovation. Let's reach out to disadvantaged populations. So if you look at the growth of charter schools starting in the 1990s, it's been pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I see. Interesting. Okay. So you've uh, had a lot of experience in other countries. Are there any other countries that you look at that are using charter schools in a different way than the U.S. that you think is worth mentioning? Um, again, just like the, the idea kind of spread across the, the, the states in the U.S., it's also spread across the world. And I think sometimes not very critically, uh, people think, hey, this is what they're doing in, in California. Let's try it in New Zealand. Um, so you get some of that kind of policy emulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, that we do see charter schools in, in Canada. They're a bit different. They're just in Alberta, but they're much more constrained and regulated. Okay. Similar models. I mentioned New Zealand where they have partnership schools. Um, which are explicitly based on the charter model in the U.S. Uh, Sweden and the U.K. have things that are like charter schools. And there's a number of countries, in fact, uh, that have what we might call public-private partnerships where they take aspects of the charter model where they're bringing in public funding and and some types of regulation, but also private management. So you see that in a number of countries. It isn't worthwhile noting that New Zealand's ending that experiment with charter schools. Oh, interesting. Uh, Yeah, they've decided against it with a changing government. And the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation, has done some research on not just charter schools, but choice in general and their findings. I think what's happening in different countries is also pretty interesting as well. Such as? Uh, there, there is concern there that um, these types of choice models seems to advantage people that already have options. Uh-huh. So wealthier, more affluent families are the ones more likely to take advantage of these choices. And in doing so, it often leads to greater socioeconomic segregation in schools, Yeah, which, you know, there's a cost to there. Plus, it, it tends to not improve outcomes overall. So even though people like the idea of choice, there are some some downsides to it as well. And it doesn't seem to be equally distributed. So poorer families, according to the OECD, you know, they're they're often looking at real world questions of like, how much time do I have to drop my kid off at a school across town before I start work in the morning? Where mm-hmm. more advantaged families might have those options already and they can, you know, they can look at kind of a wider range of schools to make choices from. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask a question here that I wasn't intending to ask, but I wonder what your thoughts are about it. I was talking to a group of friends about this series that I'm doing about education and teaching, and one of them piped up and said, are you going to talk about charter schools? And so I said, yes, in fact, I have this great guest who's going to come talk to us about charter schools. And she said, because one of the things that I think about And I don't know where she got this idea. I hadn't heard it before. But she said, one of the things that I think about with public schools is it makes us all one. That we, that that in public school, we interact with people that we wouldn't otherwise interact with. And so then she started telling some stories about some people that she had met K through 12 that you know, she just doesn't meet people like that now in her bubble, you know, that we all live in. And there were several other people in the group who piped up and said, oh, yes, you know, we had certain ethnic groups in my school. 
And that's how I got to know people like that. And it really, that conversation has stuck with me, not in any particular concrete way, but I've sort of been mulling over this idea mm-hmm. that this that the K through 12, the way it was for us, at least when we went through before there were charter schools, was it was kind of a mixing bowl and you met people from your local area that otherwise your paths just wouldn't cross. What, how do educators think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting um, spin on this because, you know, people are often focused on test scores and, and looking at, you know, curricular options, but there's also this question of social cohesion and, you know, nation building. Yeah. I I think your, your friend is correct in theory, if it's done right, that is that there's the potential for making us all one if we do it correctly. But there's a good argument that we haven't done it correctly for for decades, if not centuries. So the thing about charter schools is they really turn the old idea of the common school on its head. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know our idea of public education came out of what was called the common school movement in the 1830s and 1840s. And the idea there was uh, there were already things that were similar to charter schools at that point, and private vouchers and, and homeschooling, all that stuff was happening. But the common school reformers like Horace Mann argued, well, we need a common system of education that educates everybody, male, female, rich, poor, Protestant, Catholic. And so they tried to build a system where there would be education in common. It's never, I mean, it's always been an ideal and never been, um, I think, fully realized. We've always had segregation, you know, uh, based on where you live, you know, which school you're admitted to, that type of thing. Um, but nonetheless, that was the ideal that kind of guided our conception of public education in the U.S. for a couple of centuries, you know, even through Brown versus Board education, um, that you shouldn't be kept out of a school based on the color of your skin, for example. But I think charter schools take us in a different direction. And they're, they're much less focused on kind of the idea of building a, a common set of civic values for all people and that we'd all experience education together and more about people following their preferences. So the idea is if, if your child is more of a, a visual learner, you might find a charter school that can speak to that style. If you if you want to have a curriculum that more represents your racial or ethnic background, you know that that should be your right to do that. And so the idea of common schooling is, is seen as kind of archaic and not very useful. But it does raise the question of do charter schools or, or traditional public schools have the potential for doing that, especially in such a polarized environment where we live right now? Mm-hmm. And that's an important question to keep in mind. Are we fragmenting the one system that we have that could actually bring people together? Or is this a matter of making people happy because they can get what they want rather than having to do what the majority of voters want them in their local schools? Yeah, there's a real tension between those two goals that that I can see. Mm-hmm. Well, so back to the nuts and bolts about charter schools. Suppose I decide I want to start one. How would I go about it, and what are the considerations that that I should be thinking about? Well, like I mentioned, I think we've gotten away from the this early idea though that we're going to allow you know just mom and pop shops to spring up, you know independent charter schools, a couple teachers and a parent have a good idea about what they want, and they can start a charter school. We really aren't seeing that much of that anymore. Instead, I think if you wanted to start a charter school, your best, a bet would be to you know get in touch with a state level advocacy organization, a charter school association for your state, which often would have kind of a, a you know a guidebook. Um, they'd offer some support and some advice about how to put together an application. You would do that and then uh, approach a charter authorizer, and that varies by state. Some states allow school districts to authorize charter schools. Other states, it's more done at the central level. 
there might be one state authorizing board. Some states allow universities, public universities to authorize charter schools. If you're in Indiana, even private colleges can authorize charter schools. So it depends on the state, but you would have to get a charter. You'd have to apply for it and, and get a charter from one of those authorizers. And they're going to look at whether or not they think you have the capacity to pull it off. Do you know what you're talking about? Can you actually teach? But also, can you make payroll? You know, do you, Are you able to actually get a building? Is this an idea that's going to be attractive enough that, that many families will find it appealing and, and enroll? So they're going to look at those types of questions. I think a key thing to ask here is, well, what's different? What are you going to offer that's not already being offered? You know, Are you going to add something new to the mix that's going to attract people who are perhaps unsatisfied with what they're getting in their public schools. That's kind of the key, what's, what's different about this. So that's typically, that's kind of an overview of, of, of how that looks. And then you basically have to make it work. Um, and a lot of them don't work. Mm. Increasingly, yeah, like I say, people are partnering with, with established chains or for-profit companies that have a, you know, have a record of, of, of figuring out how these things get done. And so, authorizers are going to look to see if you have the right partners to make sure that you're not just going to, you know, collect some, some, some taxpayer dollars and then disappear. So I'm really surprised at how integrated the charter system is with the state and the local school districts. They're really kind of offshoots of, uh, of public education. I, I guess I, I would maybe characterize it that way. Like, I guess I thought they were pretty... I mean, they're competing for some of the same students uh, and they're often competing, you know, in terms of the, the same metrics as far as, you know, test scores or how many kids they get into colleges and that type of thing. So in that way, they're they're part of the same sector. But there are specific structural distinctions as well. that They're not responsive, for example, to the local school board. So if what they're teaching in a charter school upsets some of the neighbors they don't necessarily have a say in whether or not that, that should be challenged. Um, you know, they, they can't go to their local school board and say, hey, we don't like, because um, they've kind of removed that direct democratic or political um, uh, channel. Okay, okay. Where, where in a public school, if you're, if you're upset, for example, with the sex education curriculum, you know, you can complain to the school, but you can also start a recall election or run for school board. You do have some kind of direct democratic control, which is often underused, but on paper anyways, at least, you know, you have that, that mechanism. With charter schools, no, you could complain to the authorizer or the governor, but for the most part, they are, you know, getting taxpayer dollars, but they're not necessarily, rep, you know, uh, accountable directly to taxpayers. And they're, they're structured to be more accountable to the parents that choose them. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's really, I have more questions popping up in my brain all the time. So if school districts, I guess I sort of thought school districts would, in general, would not be in favor of charter schools because of the notion of competition. So why do school districts authorize any charter schools? Well, some do. Um, some do because they don't have to authorize them only in their boundaries. They can authorize, authorize charter schools that compete with other districts elsewhere. Um, oh, wow. And, and just, just, like, <laughs> just like other authorizers, you, you, uh, you know, they sometimes collect a fee with that. So there's a financial incentive built into that, you know, especially with online charter schooling, you know, like they're not constrained with just dealing with students in a particular district. So if a district authorizes an online charter school, they might, they might see that have an impact across the state. But there's also other reasons where, it's less of a, a competitive relationship and more of a cooperative relationship. A charter mm. school might 
be able to reach out and serve a particular population that's not being re- reached by the traditional public schools, you know, say an at-risk population, for example, or immigrant community or something like that. And there you might see the district say, hey, this is an interesting way for us to meet that challenge by kind of going outside of our traditional organizational structures. Um, so you, you can see some of that as well. All fascinating for sure. So Indiana has been making headlines about its schools for some years now. So what has happened in that state with vouchers and charter schools? Yeah, that's a, I mean, Indiana is kind of ground zero for these types of experiments, um, at least on a statewide level. Uh, I think there's some cities where you'll see higher concentrations of charter schools like New Orleans or, or Washington, D.C. But as far as statewide, um, uh, Indiana is definitely one of the, the leaders in, in the country. And these really are two different reform movements. You get charter schooling and, and school vouchers. Part of the same of school choice and giving families more options, but they do it differently. Charter schools purportedly work within the, the public sector, you know, that um, they collect tax dollars and they are quote unquote public schools where private schools that accept vouchers are outside that public sector. Um, even though they're getting public funding, they are still private um, and they're in no way public schools. So those are, those are, are some important distinctions. Um, but that said, uh, I think if you look at policymaking in Indiana, I've done this with Joe Moline at um, Miami University in Ohio. The justification that policymakers gave for expanding these ideas in Indiana was largely to reach out to poorer children and give them options for more quality education. You know, this is going to serve uh, kids that were underserved and, and failing public schools and at the same time reduce costs. You know, this right. was not going to be additional to taxpayers. Um, and people often point to Catholic schools, for example, that, you know, the amount of tuition people pay for a Catholic school is, is a lot smaller than the amount of per pupil funding spent on, on public school students. So they thought, hey, if we take that model and bring it in through vouchers or charter schools, you know, that's going to save taxpayers some dollars. The reality, though, has been rather different than what the expectations were. Uh, you know, there's there's some good charter schools in Indiana as elsewhere. There's some the not so good charter schools. Overall, I think people are not seeing the, the overall gains that they expected, even though in some places like Indianapolis, uh, uh, Fort Wayne, they've, they've really increased the number of charter schools in those in those districts. Um, vouchers, uh, the story is even more interesting. There, um, the research is showing that kids that are using vouchers to, to attend private schools are actually performing worse than, than they would have if they had stayed in public schools. So those vouchers are academically harmful to those kids. And at the same time, we're seeing pretty substantial costs to the taxpayers. And part of that is in Indiana is because this has become somewhat of a middle-class subsidy. So even though this was meant for kids at failing public schools, we're often seeing families that are a little bit more affluent, um, not necessarily minority, who probably would have sent their kids to private schools anyways, and now they're getting a voucher to do that. So that becomes a, a bill then for the taxpayers to, to take up. Right. So, yeah, to, to back up here for my slow brain so the idea in Indiana was we've got these low-performing urban schools. Let's do something about it. See if we can create some charter schools, and maybe those students will be will do better in those schools. So step one is that am I good so far? Yeah. Okay. And then the state also said, and we'll save some money because we're spending a lot of money per student today, and we're not getting great results. Okay, so far? Yep. Okay. Then we had kind of a combination of things that happened, both charter schools and vouchers. 
parents being uh, being wise said, hey, I'll just take these vouchers and slide off to private school. Right, which that was what was expected anyways, that, that is, you know, especially families at low-performing public schools would would say, hey, my kid deserves better, take a voucher and put him in a private school. But a couple things are happening here. One, we're finding out that private schools aren't necessarily better, so that <laughs> becomes an issue. And then the, the other thing is that these are often families that were going to send their kids to private schools anyways. So instead of paying the tuition out of their own pockets, they're simply giving taxpayers the, the bill. So that becomes a added burden on the state treasury then. Yeah. So it ended up actually being more expensive to make these options. Yeah, that's been an argument. Although some people would some people would argue that when you look at the results, there's still a savings, but nonetheless, I think the estimate last I saw was an extra fifty-four million dollars to the state treasury. Yikes. Which they promised was not going to increase the burden on taxpayers. Okay. So this is a great segue into my next question. You've written a book whose premise is in the title, The Public School Advantage, Why Public Schools Outperform Private Schools. So right along these lines, so what conclusions did you draw? Like, how do they outperform and do you know why? Yeah, that's a good good question. And I got to say, I didn't come up with the title. That was our editor at the university. Oh, yeah, so, right. That's how it yeah. works, right? <laughs> my advisor had good advice of always defer to the editor. So this is Elizabeth Branch Dyson at University of Chicago Press. said, hey, this is this would be our idea for the title. Um, but yeah, that's a, a, a couple of uh, national level studies with my lovely and brilliant wife, Sarah Tuli-Lubiansky. Oh, nice. Yeah, we, we worked together on uh, um, uh, um, looking at how um, public schools actually perform. Now we know, we've known for generations that if you look at the raw outcomes in terms of test scores for public school students compared to private school students, private school students tend to score higher. We've always known that. But the question has been, is that because the schools are better or is that because they come from families where those kids have more academic advantages and they were gonna do better no matter what type of school they went to? They're definitely, the two types of schools are definitely serving two different types of populations. And so our question was, well, are these differences in test scores a matter of demographics or are they a matter of performance? What we found once we we looked at a couple of national representative data sets with, we're talking hundreds of thousands of, of children and looking at not just their test scores, but uh, the demographic measures that, that are available, which is a pretty rich data set. We found that those demographics more than accounted for those differences in test scores. And in fact, once you look at apples to apples comparisons, a similar kid in a public school compared to a similar kid in a private school, the kids in public schools on average actually performed at a higher level. Their achievement was 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 greater than their demographic peers in private schools. And it, there's some nuance there. It depends on what type of school you're looking at. For example, the, the students in public schools outscored kids in um, uh, Catholic schools. To, uh, I think it was a several month difference. But uh, conservative Christian schools were almost a year behind. Um, and yeah, so that even though they're like kind of the fastest growing type of private school, their outcomes weren't that great. And then we were able to look at this over time longitudinally um, and looking at growth rates in different schools. And there, there's not major differences between the sectors, but that actually is important because the idea behind charter schools and school vouchers is that private schools or private style schools do better. But our findings didn't support that and, and said actually public schools were doing remarkably well, especially when you consider the fact that they're working with a population that is somewhat more challenging to, to work with. Yeah, because they're working with everyone. Everyone, a uh, higher degree of kids coming from poverty, uh, mm-hmm. kids with, with learning needs, those types of things. I would say that you know, 
just like reformers who say that charter schools are a cure-all or, you know, vouchers are great because you get into private schools. That's not true, but it's also not true that just simply moving your kid to a public school is going to fix everything either. Um, But just on average, they are doing remarkably well and, in fact, better than private and charter schools. That has messages, I say, yeah, less for parents, but more for for policymakers. You know, parents still might have reason to send their kids to the local Catholic school, but policymakers really need to think about should we be kind of encouraging and subsidizing these efforts to move lots of kids from public schools to private and charter schools? And our, our data, and, and in fact, that of several other researchers now is suggesting that that leads to worse academic outcomes and perhaps um, worse social outcomes in terms of segregation. I have to say, you're not making a compelling case for some of these things that are turn out to be more expensive and not as effective. <laughs> <laughs> There are other reasons that people choose schools, right? Like you, you might want a Catholic school education for your child because of the religious instruction, or you might want a charter school for your child because they offer a particular curricular approach that really resonates with your child. I understand that. I mean, those are those are important arguments as well. But the question really is, should this an end in and of itself, even though we're seeing that leads to detrimental, you know, more negative outcomes for a lot of kids, um, that, that becomes a concern from a policy perspective. Okay, I think that's exactly right. The parents need to, as they will, right, make these individual choices. But it's for for citizens and for policymakers. I think it's really important to understand these distinctions. And whenever there's data, I just love to grab onto that because, you know, that's the only way through these kinds of complicated topics. And one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because I think in a way the devil is in the details about some of these things. And, and I also think it's really important for, for our country. So let's talk for a minute then about local competition among the schools. Cause I, I want to see this a little bit more also in terms of not just individual choices for the parents, but like what impact does it have on a public school when these other schools come into play? And I think you've done some research in this area also, I think. Yeah, indeed. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, competition, we often look to that as an important driver for improvements. You know, we want, we want Toyota to compete with, with Honda to compete with, you know, Ford. um, And that leads to, you know, greater innovations in cars. And, you know, we all enjoy that. Hopefully it drives the price down, uh, you know, although not always. So competition can be a really important driver in some contexts, but can be more detrimental in others. Uh, there's certain areas where competition might not necessarily lead to improvement. So it raises the question, well, what about schooling? Is schooling an yeah. institution that benefits from competition or not? So if you look at, again, the, the, the arguments for school choice and bringing in you know, vouchers and charter schools, a lot of the, that did explicitly point to the idea that competition was going to lead to improvements in instruction. If you look at the, the, the laws authorizing charter schools in the U.S. across the states, for example, many of them say explicitly, you know, they're going to lead to innovations and improvements in instruction. So they, they thought that that would you know, basically force teachers and schools to do a better job for fear of losing students to other alternatives. Yeah. So there's a logic there, but it hasn't really played out as was necessarily expected. We're not seeing those kind of instructional innovations that that were anticipated. Instead, and, and this makes sense when you think about it, a lot of times educators, school leaders, they look to other things that might increase their competitive advantage besides improving instruction. And so you'll think you'll see things like, you know, moving more money into marketing budgets, you know, yeah. if, you, if you put some 
I've talked with some administrators who say, you know, I'm going to put $10,000 into marketing because I know if that brings in 10 kids at a hundred, you know, at $10,000 each kid, you know, that more than pays for itself. That's, you know, that really has an impact or let's have their kids wear school uniforms. You know, when they go on field trips, let's have them wear t-shirts. You know, these are forms of marketing that we hadn't really thought about before. And that oftentimes I think becomes more of a focus for um, educators because there's an immediate payoff. They can see that making a difference for their bottom line. Yep. So that's important. And We've seen this also, unfortunately, this has some implications for selection or segregation that sometimes schools want to be seen more advantaged population, you know, like they, the kids that are going to go to Ivy League schools, you know, they want to kind of present an image to the public of, of serving certain types of schools and, and excluding others. Yeah. Um, so we, we do see some implications for that. I, some of the work I've done in New Zealand, for example, schools would explicitly advertise themselves on the fact that they were serving very few poor kids um, because parents, parents would confuse that with school quality. And, and so schools would talk about themselves in those terms because parents, thought, Oh, that means you're a good school. Uh, you know, if you have a certain, a certain number by, you know, decile, they call it there, a certain decile by your school, that means you're a good school, but it often actually was a measure of number of disadvantaged kids in a school. So you get these types of things happening and you see this around the world, you know, people, uh, schools handing out iPads, um, you know, as a enticement for people to enroll or, you know, taking out billboards. So there's a shift in resources away from the classroom in some cases, more towards marketing. Through the course of my series here, I've really been disturbed to hear about how bad our public schools are that serve minority students. I think one guest said somebody ought to go to jail for for what we've done. So I just want to ask you, stepping back from all these, what do you think is the right way to fix our bad schools? And I, I would not disagree with that, despite what we talked about earlier, public school advantage and the fact that public schools are doing uh, pretty good relative to um, demographically similar private schools and charter schools. There's still massive amounts of underperformance and failure in our public school system, especially for a lot of disadvantaged populations. You know, some kids are underserved. But that said, we also have you know, there's differences in academic outcomes, and they're very pronounced. We talk about the achievement gap, for example. Mm-hmm. But decades, decades of research have, have shown us that school factors are not necessarily the main factor here, even the plurality of the predictors, you know, in terms of school outcomes. You know, the impact the teacher can have can seem substantial, but when we try and quantify that, it's, it's, it's far, you know, it's, it's, it's swamped by other factors such as um, students' home environments. Oh, how much educational uh, resources they have in the home. Those things matter a lot more. So, from a policymaking perspective, and we can talk about things like you know giving families choices and that type of thing, but that doesn't seem to be to have the leverage that we had hoped. And instead, it's it's addressing some of those root causes. That's not really sexy or you know necessarily attractive. It's very expensive. It takes a lot of political capital. But addressing some of those those root issues that some kids are growing up in extreme poverty and you know isolation only around other families who look like them who have the same types of of challenges they have you know they're not exposed to to more advantaged peers who are talking about how to finish their homework or what college you're going to apply to you know those types of segregation forces really do matter so that that becomes an issue I think for policymakers that they really have to to think about are they willing to bite the bullet and do some of the hard things. Richard Rothstein is a researcher and he's, you know, he's made the point, we can blame schools, but when you have a kid with a toothache who can't afford glasses, you know, who can't see the chalkboard in school, when you have those types of challenges, you can talk about teacher effectiveness, but it's not really going to get at those other issues, which 
you know, we, we know have a, a major impact. And it's just a question about whether our leaders are willing to make the hard choices to invest in, in solutions to those things. I think that's one of the things that the coronavirus uh, pandemic has brought to the fore for me is sort of is sort of revealing how much the schools were doing just in terms of taking care of the students from, yeah. you know, from feeding them to sometimes even doing their laundry to, yeah. I mean, I think back to, you know, it was often at the school that it was discovered that somebody had a, a hearing problem yep. or needed glasses. I, yeah. in fact, I think we got vaccinated at school. You know, it's, it's like schools have become kind of a stand in for just taking care of our people. Yeah, and if you go back to again that common school movement, that was part of the idea that um, you know that schools could serve a, a function that couldn't be served necessarily by individual families. And there there are some problems with that argument, but at the same time, it's also true that for a lot of kids, schooling is the most stable lives. You know, mm-hmm. that's the part where they get nourishment. They they're the most safe. You know, those types of things matter as well. So those are big challenges that we've put on schools to solve these big social problems and don't always equip them then to do that. Yeah, I guess then I, what I think of is immediately as well, then there's this, you know, kind of significant resentment sometimes about how much schools cost. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, <laughs> the school is doing a lot more than just educating the kids, you know, it's providing a safety net and that, that costs money. Yeah, it does. And it costs a lot of money if you don't do it right later on in terms of other social costs, you know, in terms of, um, you know, unemployment and, and family breakdown and, and incarceration. Those things are costly, too. So there is a reason to think about, you know, biting the bullet and and uh, and, and putting the investment in up front. Mm-hmm. Do you think with everything that you know, do you feel as though we have kind of confused schools with a social safety net? and I'm asking this question, honestly, I I don't have an agenda here. Do you think we would be better off for schools and for kids if we made different programs that did provide some of these services that schools are currently providing outside of education? Yeah, that's a great question. I I would say that we've made educators kind of responsible for a lot of these things, which are really outside of their control. The, when you look again back at the, the foundations of the public school system in the U.S., there was a lot of optimism that they were going to they were going to do that that they were going to solve problems, um, you know, like a social inequality and and crime. Horace Mann talked about you know schools being the great balancing wheel of the social machinery, and that mm-hmm. if we if everybody went to public schools, we could get rid of nine tenths of the laws because we wouldn't need them. You know, there's all this optimism about how schools would solve social problems. Mm-hmm. But that said, you know we've created a system where we keep adding things to the, the menu for schools. So, you know, solve the, solve the childhood obesity problem, solve the fact that, you know, some kids, uh, some teenagers get pregnant, solve these other problems. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily structured in a way to do that. And then we blame them and we blame teachers when we get these outcomes, which do impact academic achievement, but they can't necessarily be solved by, you know, traditional educational approaches. So the, the schools get, get a lot of this stuff thrust on them and then they get the blame for it. Are there any myths or misconceptions out there in general that you see in the media and the headlines or public perception that you wish would be refined? 
<laughs> yeah, well, in this day and age, there's a bunch of them. Um, but, <laughs> Here's your chance to fix yeah. it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, one thing you hear a lot about is, you know, money doesn't matter. Um, that mm. you, could, you know, if you, if you pour more money into a lot of these failing districts, it's not going to solve anything. And there's, again, a logic to that. You know, there is a lot of uh, wasteful bureaucracy and inefficiency. But we also know that those resources do matter when they're, when they're leveraged appropriately. Mm. You know, when you're when you're targeting them in a way that's strategic, money can matter. And, you know, that's part of the reason that rich people tend to send their kids to well-resourced schools. You know, they, they seem to assume that money matters. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. <laughs> and, and another thing I think is, you know, if you listen to policymakers on both sides of the aisle, you know, um, whether it's Presidents Clinton and Obama or Presidents Bush and Trump, you know, they, there is this kind of infatuation with school choice. Uh, to different degrees, but nonetheless, they think choice is a, a good thing and it leads to innovation. But we're not really seeing those results play out, at least to the, the optimistic degree that they they anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm a parent and I'm an American consumer and I like choice too. I, you know, I like having options, um, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problems that we're trying to address, you know, whether it's low achievement or social inequality. And in fact, we know it may exacerbate things. You know, it often makes things worse. We're seeing greater levels of segregation sometimes because parents are making choices that reflect. Right. We talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that becomes an issue. And again, it's not that there's not room for choice. Choice can be a useful part of a system. But when we're talking about building a system, you know, only on choice and competition, I think we really need to be paying attention to the empirical findings, which um, raise a lot of caution flags here. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this was an, a, just a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of, of resources, how they could follow your work, or really anything you'd like them to know? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, there's a, um, a group called, called the National Education Policy Center, which does some really um, good work around a lot of these issues. Um, so that's NEPC, National Education Policy Center. And then uh, you know, I'm on Twitter at um, CLUB underscore EDU. So we'll uh, say hi there. Yeah, good. I'll, I'll provide links to those and the show notes. So thank you so much for the work that you do and for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.